So, uh, welcome to the LSE and welcome to this public event hosted by the European Institute, a department of the LSE dedicated to the study of Europe. There will be a book signing on stage at the end of the event. Uh, so if you have a copy of the book, or perhaps another of Simon's books, uh, come along and queue up and he'll do a signing here. My name is also Simon, <laughs> uh, Simon Glendinning, and I'm head of the European Institute. The European Institute is, as far as we know, the largest centre for postgraduate studies of Europe in the world. Uh, what a time to be studying Europe and studying in London. The man who repaired my car the other day remembered me as the person who worked in Brexit studies. <coughs> <clears throat> this is the Europe thing that overwhelms us today, but it's not going to limit us today. But for good or ill, for better or worse, for richer or poorer, this country produced a constitutional crisis for itself by exiting a transnational and international institution perceived as a corrupt and overweening power. This is perhaps how it looks now, but actually what I've just described is not today. The year is 1534, and power in this country, the power of an English king, and one wouldn't speak of a British power until the union with Scotland in 1707, English power was in a furious row with the then-dominant European power, the power of the Catholic Church and the Pope. A European institutional power then seemed to be utterly corrupt, as well as too dominant. The king, Henry VIII, wanted a divorce. He attempted first to get a withdrawal agreement from the Holy Roman Emperor, <laughs> Charles V. The emperor's aunt, Charlie's aunt, was, you see, the English king's wife. But Charles refused, and then the pope refused in turn. So the king did without permission and took charge of the English church himself to allow his divorce. Take back control. <laughs> A strictly English reformation, says our guest speaker tonight. For some, it became a time of fully serviced luxury feudalism. The dissolution of the monasteries made both the English king and the rising mercantile class quite suddenly unbelievably rich. You could not put the figure on the side of a bus. None of this stopped Britain getting involved in European affairs, but now conclusively semi-detached, it as our speaker will say, edged sideways into Europe's cultural renaissance at the time. Moreover, the break with Rome hardly led to the sovereign taking back control. Indeed, what happened next was a wholesale transformation of sovereign power in Britain, with its <coughs> transference to a rather different sort of elected body, indeed to that very body of men who had so prospered under Henry's strictly English Reformation only 100 years earlier. They demanded full sovereignty for their own parliament, and the English king lost his head when he wouldn't give up his power. As our speaker states, England proceeded to compress into two decades a revolution that was to take two centuries in most of Europe. Well, those two decades concluded with the nation being invited to change its mind about monarchy. 
which it did, at least in a newly constitutional form. Well, who knows what is next for Britain and its faltering union, or for Europe and its still faltering union? Well, I may work in a department of Brexit studies, but none of us there knows what the parties in Britain's sovereign parliament are going to do in the next few weeks, let alone in the next 100 years, supposing our parliament lasts that long in a party form, which I doubt. Perhaps it will take Britain the next two centuries simply to come to terms with its own imperial history and its ending. No one has yet compressed that sort of transformation into two decades. But who knows? We are backing into the future. With a Britain, with a Europe. Perhaps we are no further than we were in 1919, when, after the end of the First Great War, the French poet Paul Valéry began an essay on Europe with the words of mourning, we later civilizations, we too now know that we are mortal. The abyss of history is deep enough to hold us all. But our history must be known before it can be forgotten. And our guest tonight gets going on his short history of Europe with a quotation from Cicero, to be ignorant of history is to be always a child. Adding in his own name that those who cannot speak history to each other have nothing meaningful to say. So who will be speaking meaningfully to us tonight? Our speaker is a journalist and author. He writes weekly for The Guardian and has edited The Evening Standard and The Times. He was chairman of the National Trust from 2008 to 14 and previously Deputy Chairman of English Heritage. He served on the boards of British Rail, London Transport, and the Museum of London. He chaired the editorial board of Pevsner Guides and is a trustee of the Church's Conservation Trust. His books include works on London's architecture, the press, and British politics. His bestsellers include England's 1,000 Best Churches and 1,000 Best Houses, a study of Thatcherism, and a short history of England. <clears throat> His most recent works are on cathedral and railway architecture. His short history of Europe, which we'll be talking about today, appeared in November. And it is to this that we invite him to speak to us tonight, Sir Simon Jenkins. Uh, thank you very much. I've got to first learn how to work this machine. Which, I press that. Right. There we go, right. Um, uh, I, I came along here promising we wouldn't discuss bloody Brexit. <laughs> and now you have, Simon. <laughs> um, but um, but it, it, in the book, I actually go through the number of times we Brexited Europe and changed our mind. The answer is nine. Um, but we changed our mind eight times. There's one more to go. Um, uh, and it is actually curious, and it's, indeed it's in a sense a theme of, of Britain and Europe, is changing our mind. And I sort of want to turn to that, discuss that this evening, because um, I, I normally talk about the history of Europe in more or less an hour, which is kind of leisurely compared to tonight, when I've got 20 minutes. Um, so uh, forgive me if I appear to miss one or two things out. <laughs> Um, but uh, but um, I, I'm going to try and draw out one or two themes from Europe's history which I think are relevant to the way in which we try and confront our present discontents, to put it in a nutshell. 
And, um, and a lot of it has to do with geography. I start at the very beginning with Hecate's map of Europe, the first, the first uh, known map of Europe. Um, it, it's interesting for two reasons. The first is I noticed that it, it, it uh, precedes uh, the discovery of Britain. Uh, and, um, and, of course, the discovery of Britain sometime before this, however, um, uh, w w was, was invented by the invasion of uh, the inundation of Doggerland um, and the, the Rhine and the Thames crashing through the Straits of Calais um, and uh, creating the English Channel, thereby forming the first Brexit. Um, and without any shadow of a doubt, the most important <laughs> that separated us from the rest of Europe. Um, but, um, but it was interesting also because this, this map showed how the Europeans saw Europe really right through the Middle Ages, which is um, as the center of the world. But it wasn't just the center of the world. Um, as, as Simon said, it was, it, was, it was a lake. And I think the lake characteristic of Europe was very, very important at this particular juncture because I do see Europe as a, as a tussle. The whole way through Europe's history, it's been a, a battle between opposites. But initially, it was a battle between the people of the sea, the Achaeans, the Greeks, um, people who lived by ships, who fought in ships, who traveled in ships, who were curious, who constantly meeting new people, having to get on with new people, having to compromise with new people. They were the people of the sea, as against the people of the land, who were the invading tribes coming out of Russia and, uh, and Anatolia, um, who were used to colonizing land, sitting on land, uh, fighting over land, um, but... but, but essentially introverted as a result. And it's this tension between the people of the sea and the people of the land that I believe is the reason why the question which I started the book on, and I remained fascinated by, why was it that this tiny corner of Asia by the 19th century ruled half the world? Not proud of it. I'm just asking why that was the case. What was so special about Europe that made it so powerful, so advanced, um, uh, and I may say so obsessed with conflict? And I think it is to do, it goes right back to this, this tug between the people of the land and the people of the sea. Of all the things that amazed me, um, and I was a classicist by, by background, um, the most extraordinary was the, was the, um, the dominance of Greece and Rome. Um, it's very difficult to come up with something um, in modern European culture that doesn't have some echo in Greece and Rome, uh, and particularly Greece. I'm a Grecian rather than a Roman. Um, it, was, it, it, was, it was Greek philosophy, Greek literature, Greek drama, uh, Greek architecture, still obsesses um, cultural historians. Um, and why that should have been the case uh, in this very primitive corner of an internal lake on the outskirts of Asia, I still find extraordinary, except that I have to explain it by something to do with the people of the sea. There was something about seafaring made people curious about the nature of mankind and led them to produce Plato and Aristotle. Uh, and all, I defer to Simon on this, but all, all later philosophies and notes, someone said, to Aristotle. Uh, and even when you get to Rome uh, after this, the, um, the, the, I think Virgil said, you're all right, you Greeks. You can do amazing sculpture. You can write damn nice plays, but you couldn't do politics. You really screwed up politics. Uh, and Rome, we Romans, we knew about politics. If you can't ordain peace, if you can't command force, all your cultures are nothing. And it was that combination of Greek culture, it's a cliche now, Greek culture and Roman power, which lasted almost a millennium, uh, and um, bequeathed to Europe this, this dual concept of a culture and a power that formed, in, formed empire, formed the Roman Empire. And out of it, you, you get, um, you get the, the, the first um, 
uh, movement, so to speak, out of the Mediterranean, when the northern tribes, the Franks, the Goths, the Lombards, the Vandals, um, uh, under Charlemagne, um, formed the first empire post-Rome. And the first empire post-Rome was obsessed with two things. One was being an empire, which is what Roman was, but also um, with, 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 with the idea that Rome still was the place that you looked to. I mean, the German, first German empire, the Holy Roman Empire, was Roman. And Charlemagne was obsessed with it being Roman. Charlemagne went to Rome. He, was, he, was, he wanted to be Rome. But all the, I, one of the things about writing a book about history, you, you, one of the people you long to meet. I'd long loved to meet Charlemagne. Twelve wives, um, dressed up as a, as, as, as a barbarian king with cross-gartered leggings and everything. Um, but longed to go to Rome. Pleaded with, with, with anyone who knew Rome uh, to, to tell him about Latin and, uh, and, and what happened, what Rome was like. Because he goes to Rome, completely taken in by the Pope. And from then on, you have this terrible problem that the, the, the Holy Roman Empire, which is about Germany, um, uh, was always trying to remain in control of, of Italy. And, and the tug between Italy and Germany went right on through to the 19th century. But as you go, as you go forward, the people of the sea um, become more and more dominant. The Normans, the Battle of Hastings, uh, the, the Normans come out of the north. Uh, Charlemagne was convinced that the, 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 uh, the people of the north, as he, called, as he called them, were going to conquer Germany after he was dead. Germany and France were one country then. Um, and, of course, in a sense, they did. I mean, the Normans went, went right into Russia, came down the Volga, all, all the Russian rivers. They got to Constantinople. Um, <clears throat> they came in. They conquered Sicily. Um, they then formed an alliance with the, Rome, with, with, with the Pope in Rome. Um, and and, and this, 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 this tremendous power um, uh, shift round the coasts of Europe um, produced uh, the, the, the great onrush of Christian uh, militancy called the Crusades. Uh, and... and um, and a sense that the Roman Empire was now reborn uh, in the Roman Church. And the Roman Church took on so many of the terminologies, uh, the, 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 the characteristics of the Roman Empire, plus one the Roman Empire never did. It split. Uh, and it split between Rome and Constantinople. And, and from then on, you have uh, Christianity perpetually dividing itself, like an amoeba, uh, and, and in doing so, weakening itself. But, um, but the, the, um, the, the, the great character who I would not like to have met, Innocent III, uh, um, probably the high point of divine autocracy, when he, 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 his uh, Fourth Lateran Council uh, laid down what were the powers of the Pope and why secular authority across Europe should always bow down and kiss the shoe of the Pope. Uh, and it was an awesome document in which, in which, in a sense, people at that time who fought, felt that kings were ordained by God in some way um, uh, had to pay obeisance to the Pope in Rome, to, 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 um, to, uh, um, to Innocent, um, in his great crusades against, crusade against everyone, the Albigensians, um, the Constantinople, everybody was the enemy of, 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 of the Pope, and the Pope's, Pope's um, ability to command force was a very important part of the Roman Church in the, in the early Middle Ages. What is so interesting is no sooner does he produce this, um, this Fourth Lateran Council, um, the, 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 the charter or diktat. Um, at the same time, they're gathering in Runnymede in England a bunch of barons who are publishing Magna Carta, which has absolutely nothing in common with the Fourth Lateran Council. It is the beginning of the English Reformation, to my mind. And, um, and it, 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 the inability of, 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 of the Pope, with all the power at his disposal, to dominate the minds of men and women in Europe, um, at the edges it's beginning to fray. And one of the themes of Europe is, is the fraying at the edges. 
Uh, England is a very unimportant country to most of the history of Europe, as is Russia to most of the history of Europe, uh, as indeed is places like Portugal and Spain. Europe is about France and Germany and Italy. Uh, the history of Europe is those three countries in permanent turbulence between them. Um, and, and with these, these, these peripheral countries endlessly bombarding it and bouncing up against it and bouncing off it again. So you, you've, got these, you've got all these tussles and, 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 and um, conflicts taking place right through. Um, the the, the uh, inability of the Pope to um, resolve its differences with Constantinople, uh, a split church, the Great Schism, um, is finally resolved uh, in 1453 by um, the, uh, the, um, the Ottomans, uh, the Muslims, helpfully coming along conquering Constantinople, uh, wiping out one half of the argument, although they had actually sorted it out just three years beforehand. But um, it was very interesting. It wasn't really till then, the end of the 15th century, that Europe takes on the character of Europe. Up until then, uh, in, in the Roman period, Europe included Africa and Asia, big chunks of both. Um, uh, by now, it didn't include much other than Asia Minor and Turkey. But, but under, the, under the Ottomans, uh, it swept up into Europe, into Kosovo, um, uh, besieged Vienna. Uh, in many ways, Europe was very lucky. Uh, to, 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 in Genghis Khan's hordes came in um, uh, a bit earlier, but very lucky to escape um, with, with Christianity at all. Um, at least in its, in, its, in its eastern portions. But by now, um, you've had the great catastrophe. Constantinople, by far the biggest city in Europe, um, has gone Muslim, and it didn't come back. Uh, it was extraordinary. The, 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 the Christianity at the end of the uh, Roman period, uh, um, Christianity included uh, twice as many people as it did after the fall of Constantinople. The whole of the Mediterranean, which had been a lake, a Christian lake, became <clears throat> essentially a Muslim lake. Uh, and and, uh, and the, the centre of gravity of, of Europe moved north and stayed north ever, ever since. Uh, the south, in a sense, look, looks, looked south, the sort of border with, with the south, but the north was the, 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 the core of Europe. Um, but no sooner had the split with Constantinople been resolved than a new split opens up um, between uh, um, the Roman Church, Holy Roman Empire, um, Isabella of Spain, uh, mother of uh, Charles V, and Luther. Uh, and this battle was to be much more fierce than the battle between Rome and Constantinople um, uh, because it was, it was theological and political. The, 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 the argument was over the power of the Pope, the power of the Church, over the secular state as against the, the Bible and everything the Bible said. Um, uh, it would have been infinitely better if Luther hadn't been such a bastard. Um, but, um, but the fact was he, he, he needed to be um, to carry through what he was, he was about. Um, the trouble was you then had Calvinism and um, Zwingli and all the other people who split from Luther. So uh, as, as fissiparious as Catholicism was, so was Protestantism. And that gave rise in due course um, to the most horrible event in Europe's history before the, before the 20th century, which was the Thirty Years' War uh, in the early 17th century <clears throat> between the Holy Roman Empire or the Holy Roman Emperor and a chunk of his empire, uh, which, was, uh, which was North Germany, uh, Prussia and so on. Um, and um, it was, it was a, a, a battle which somehow harked right back to the early tribes invading Europe, um, fighting with themselves over land, fighting and fighting and fighting until there's nothing left of the land. Uh, and the 17th century Europe just came to a halt because of that war. Um, and Britain was, of course, allowed to proceed with the Industrial Revolution uh, and an empire, while the rest of Europe simply um, immersed itself in this bloody conflict. 
Um, uh, and as, as Simon said, um, the, the British sort of, when it was over, um, 1648, it ended with the Treaty of Westphalia. The British sort of thought, well, shouldn't we had something to do with this? I mean, wouldn't it be a good idea if we'd had a sort of civil war? Um, so we had a sort of civil war, which is almost a gentlemanly tea party compared to the Thirty Years' War. Um, but at the end of it, um, I, I just think the 17th century in Britain, I'm not the only person to think this, was an absolutely fascinating period in which the British sort of sorted it out. Uh, there has to be consent to rule. Uh, if there's not consent to rule, it will always be unstable. Uh, the autocracies of, autocracies of Europe came out of Westphalia as they came out of later um, treaties, uh, saying to themselves, um, anything but smacks of consent is a disaster. We repress. The British said the opposite. We allow. Uh, and it's that tension, which again becomes a, a ruling tension of Europe into the uh, 18th century. Um, and and, uh, and it, it, it was... Um, it was sparked off, really, by this extraordinary final flowering of France. France is by far the most important country in Europe, from Charlemagne onwards, um, up until now, uh, Louis XIV, uh, who, who um, simply went mad. I and mean, he simply believed that France was the, the most glorious country in the world. Um, it was the most powerful country in the world. Uh, it was the richest country in the world. In all kinds of ways, it was the best. Uh, and, um, and he declared the war of Spanish succession um, and found himself endlessly at war as a result, um, sucking Britain just for once into Europe, Marlborough, um, fight the Battle of Blenheim, then go straight back again um, and, and, and has a row with Queen Anne. Um, do, not, do not see the favourite. It's absolute rubbish. Um, but uh, it's wonderful rubbish. Um, but anyway, I mean, it was, it was, it was interesting that the, 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 the outcome of Louis XIV was effectively the destruction of France. It was the ultimate hubris. Um, uh, after he died... Uh, France, France went into the, the, um, the Enlightenment period. Um, a, a fascinating thing to emerge in France, because in many ways France was um, still weighed down by Catholic autocracy. Um, and yet you had this flowering of the encyclopedists, uh, Diderot, Voltaire, another guy I'd love to have met, um, uh, Rousseau, Montesquieu, and so on. They loved Britain. They, they flocked to Britain because they found Britain's free. People can say anything they like in Britain. They can be rude about the king. Um, it wasn't too difficult then. Um, uh, um, uh, but Voltaire um, was imprisoned in France for saying the wrong thing, comes to Britain, but keeps, um, he's, he's, he's beloved of many French people. Uh, he writes to Frederick the Great, uh, Catherine the Great of Russia, um, really pleading with them um, uh, to look back at the great uh, messages of the, of the Renaissance, um, the, the, the importance of the individual, the importance of consent to rule. Didn't get on at all well with Catherine the Great. Um, and, uh, and, uh, and sounding like a very, very modern person. And, of course, the result of that was, was the American War of Independence, hugely significant ideologically for Europe, because it was an example that you could have a revolution which worked. And not just worked, but the British took it rather well. Uh, it was, it, we, we, we said, well, maybe we were wrong. Um, we made a hash of it, um, but let's welcome the Americans back and trade with them. Um, but it was the example that sparked the French Revolution, and that French Revolution... Uh, Produced, or we know, it, can you see that? Right. Anyway, the, that's the um, tennis court oath. Um, uh, French Revolution exhilarated the British. At long last, France has got the point. Um, and, uh, and terrified the Prussians and the Russians and all the other people. France has not got the point, it's got the wrong point. Um, <laughs> but the, 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 the importance of the French Revolution um, was A, that it, were, that it occurred, and B, that it failed. Uh, and, and it was, it was, it was um, Burke, who was the only person who read it right, 
um, pissing all the other people from Wordsworth thought it was a terrific occasion. Bliss it was that dawn to be alive, he said. Um, Burke said, wait a minute, this is going to lead to dictatorship, and it led to dictatorship. Um, and the first man since Charlemagne really to rule quite so much of Europe. Um, but, but Napoleon, the point of Napoleon was A, that he ruled Europe, uh, B, that he failed at the end, but C, that most of what Napoleon was about remained. Uh, and he was about a sort of equality. He was about a sort of um, strong state. Uh, he invented almost the French statism. Um, uh, and and he, he ushered in uh, the 19th century uh, and, and all that that meant um, on the basis of the concept of a government being powerful, strong, and getting its way. And um, uh, the result at the, um, at the Congress of Vienna <clears throat> was this great debate, which Castlereagh uh, stimulated, as to, as to whether the cause of the French Revolution was too much control or too little. Whether, there was, whether it was a, the danger was, as Tocqueville said, the moment of greatest risk of any dictatorship is when it starts to reform. Um, uh, the, 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 the Austrians and the um, Prussians and the Russians were all saying they shouldn't have reformed. That was their mistake. Um, Castlereagh said, uh, you should not just have reformed, you should reform more readily, and you should get on with it now. This was Castlereagh, a fanatical conservative. He got to Vienna, he was regarded as a dangerous revolutionary. It shows you how Europe was split then. Um, I have to say, I love this, this slide, because you see everybody dressed in white pantaloons and red jackets and gold braid and everything. Um, no one will guess, who's the most influential man in world history? It's a man who, about 10 years after the Congress of Vienna, said every gentleman should get up in the morning, put on black trousers, a black coat, a white shirt, and a necktie. Beau Brummel. Uh, within 10 years, every English politician was dressed like that. Within 100 years, every politician in Europe was dressed like that. And I noticed at the last United Nations General Assembly, everyone was dressed like that, including the Chinese. I mean, that's power. Um, but that's, sorry, that's a distraction, but I, I, one of the things about European history that loves me, the, I love these minor distractions. Um, but certainly, um, uh, no one dressed like that again in European history um, because of Beau Brummel. Um, but uh, the other thing about that is, is that, uh, is that <clears throat> out of the um, Congress of Vienna came this um, emphasis on nationalism. Uh, the, the German um, identity became more and more asserted. Uh, the, the Holy Roman Empire had collapsed under Napoleon. Um, it, was, it was a very significant institution, I may say. <clears throat> Brexit-wise, there's much in the Holy Roman Empire we might discuss, but, um, but it, it was over. Um, it, it, the Germans uh, were putty in the hands of the Prussians, um, uh, and the Italians were beginning to find a new identity. And so um, by the second half of the 19th century, two completely new German states, new European states had been created. Um, Italy with Cavour and, and Garibaldi uh, on the left, and uh, Germany under, um, the, under Bismarck on the right. Um, Italy was not important uh, in that sense. Uh, Bismarck was very important, uh, possibly the most sort of powerful man in Europe for, for centuries. Um, uh, and it was Bismarck who fashioned the Europe of nation states that um, gave rise at the, out, at, the, at the end of it all to, um, to the First World War. And I was very interested seeing the massive literature about the causes of the First World War uh, uh, back in 2014 and since, um, how no one can agree what was the cause, but they sort of felt it went back to Bismarck. Um, and, uh, and Bismarck, on his, on his deathbed, said, um, if, if, uh, if Europe comes to war again, he was determined it shouldn't. He was a remarkable man. He said, it'll be because of some damn fool thing in the Balkans. 
and he was absolutely right. Um, it, 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 was, it, was, um, it, was, it was a sort of, it's like the Thirty Years' War all, all over again. All the uh, tribalism, all the, all the hatreds, all the, all the um, regrets, all, the, uh, all the, the feelings of failure and, 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 and dissent and resentment uh, that go into nationalism. <clears throat> We're all bound up in the causes of the First World War. And I just don't think anyone's got an answer to what really caused it, um, except too much spending on military. But at the end of it, um, you had um, this, this, this sort of tragedy. Uh, the tragedy of the First World War was the war. The second tragedy was the Treaty of Versailles and the behavior of the French. Uh, and uh, Clemenceau effectively, uh, and Lloyd George's and the Americans' failure to stop him, <clears throat> effectively caused the Second World War. Uh, because it was out of the First World War that, um, that, that German resentment was allowed to fester. And, and it, it, resentment is the worst thing that you can have if you're trying to create conditions for peace. And, and the... the um... Oh, God, I can't do this. Let's, let's, go... Let's, go, let's go back to the... They're coming. Cavalry are coming. We need... A, we need, a, we need a... Oh. I think we got it. We got it. Then that. We know that story. Um, uh, um, but but there was a horrible certainty of it from the moment uh, Versailles was signed, um, <clears throat> and you just felt that all the mistakes that Europe had made, uh, going right back almost to Charlemagne, um, uh, were being made yet again, uh, and you knew what was going to result from it. Um, and out of that came came um, uh, Second World War, and uh, the nature of the, of the uh, treaty that resolved it, which involved a, 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 an old British colony, America coming and rescuing us, um, and Russia winning the war, in my view. Um, uh, so you had, you had the situation in which, in which the, the, the principal components of the war, Austria, Germany, and France, and Italy, were not present at the peace. Um, and, and from it, you got... Um, the, the, the disaster that ensued from uh, Potsdam and Yalta, which was uh, the, the, um, the, the refusal of Stalin uh, to agree to democracy in Eastern Europe. Uh, and it was pressed on him. Um, there was a fear that it would mean resuming the war by moving the um, boundary further east into Russia. Uh, the Western powers caved in. Uh, Stalin got his way, uh, and the um, Iron Curtain goes up. Um, but it's what happens next brings us bang up to today. Because um, what happens next is uh, the, the Cold War drifts on, mercenary never becomes hot. Um, I, I personally don't think it was ever going to, but nonetheless, it was a, a mercy it didn't. Uh, until 1989, and the Berlin Wall comes down. When the Berlin Wall comes down, you might have thought that people would have read their history books. They didn't. Uh, they gloated. We won. Thatcher goes to Paris as a celebration. There's a general feeling that we, Reagan was, was in an exultant mood. We won, we won, we won. Nothing could have been better calculated to inflict on Russia what we inflicted on Germany in 1919. Uh, and we did the one thing that, uh, that I've been to conferences on this, was calculated to produce Putinism. We moved NATO's frontier towards Russia. Yeltsin pleaded, pleaded with them not to. Um, we didn't just move NATO's frontier, we moved the EU frontier towards Russia. Um, they wanted it, they begged for it, all that's understandable. It was a big mistake in my view. 
uh, and, um, and it is now, I think, being widely regarded as such. But anyway, it was a big mistake. And out of that comes um, yet another of these great conflicts that Europe seems to crave, um, in which, in which it, 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 it's, 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 it's surging backwards and forwards. Um, people are finding grievances all the time. Uh, and, and on these grievances, someone with, as, as, in my view, as limited a imagination as Putin um, is clearly able to play uh, because he, he basically wants to get his own back. He wants to reassert Russian pride. Every historian of Russian knows Russia is about pride, um, about, about um, territory, uh, about aggrandizement. Um, it just does not want to be made humiliated, and it was humiliated in 1989. Yet another mistake um, <clears throat> all history tells you not to make. Um, and inevitably out of that, uh, Europe happily sheltering under the American nuclear umbrella and under the guarantee of American security against their own mistakes yet again uh, with um, a power to the East, in this case Russia, um, ends up with a president who's called the bluff. And it ends with this uh, wonderful photograph, um, which I just think uh, sums up everything I've been talking about. Um, desperate, furious Europeans glaring at an American president saying, why don't you protect us? And he's saying, piss off. Uh, now, I just think in all this, we've seen, we've seen these tensions, which um, I see as going right back to the early tribal uh, colonization of Europe. Um, today, still, apparently there are 40 languages spoken in Europe. Um, wonderful, but really. <laughs> um, uh, and my father spoke one of them, which is Welsh. Um, but, but, um, but you think with all these, um, look at the breakup of Yugoslavia. It was, it was pure 19th century. Uh, and although I genuinely believe that war, war will never again be a feature of the Europe's history uh, and, and Europe's conflicts will find their ways of sorting themselves out, um, to keep making the same mistake, um, uh, and the EU, I believe, because I was always a Eurosceptic, was in a sense a mistake, an understandable one, a desperate attempt not to make the mistake that was made um, after the First World War, ending up with the European Union, but, but that remorseless sense of bureaucratic centralism um, getting to the point where you, you've almost done another um, Innocent III, um, pulling Europe together in, 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 a, in, a, in a bureaucratic enclave from which inevitably the fringes start breaking away. And that's where we are now. I don't know where we're going. Don't ask. But thank you very much. <laughs> now, uh, we've got some time, and I've got take the opportunity to ask some questions of my own and then uh, I'll open it to everybody to ask their questions and there will be uh, a microphone somewhere. Okay, so when, when, <coughs> when, it, when it's your turn, do wait for the mic. I'll point you out and you just wait for the mic. But it's me first. He's got his hand up already. Just <laughs> a moment. The, um, the thing I want to start with, uh, because we're in the London School of Economics, is something at the beginning of your book which is uh, an insistence that one really has to first take what you call a political approach to Europe's story, and that you call this the beginning of all other narratives. And so the first question I wanted to ask you is about um, economic history. You speak at a certain point in the book about the emergent capitalist economy in the 15th century, the rising power of a mercantile class, in the 16th century, but these, as it were, seem to just occur, uh, just almost fall from the sky when you, what you're telling is a political history, which 
at some point you actually acknowledge it can look like just like a meaningless sequence of meaningless wars. And, and there they all are, just one after another, and Europe's at, Europe's at, at it again. Um, and some people might think, here, I don't know, uh, that unless you look at economic development, you're not really going to get a sort of narrative trajectory through your otherwise meaning, meaningless events. So why, first question, politics and political history rather than economics and economic history? Right, well, I... I, I... My subject at the University was economic history, so I, I start from precisely your standpoint. Uh, the answer is Virgil's answer. Um, I do believe history begins with politics. It is about the clash of, of powers. Uh, and the clash of power does reflect itself in, in king's dates and battles, and it really does. Uh, I think everything else um, is, is the next story. There's social history, there's, there's every kind of history knocking about now. It's cultural history, it's very important. Um, economic history to me is indeed uh, the next after it. I mean, I have to say, I, 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 you asked an economic question because you're in the LSE. Um, the last time I got this one, why haven't you done geography? Oh. It starts with geography. Right. It's all about lakes and mountains and, and, uh, and islands, um, which it is. I mean, I have to buy into that. It just was early, earlier than I kind of came into it. But I do genuinely believe that, that the, the story of Europe can only be understood ab initio in terms of the conflict of powers. And that conflict is armies, uh, it's, 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 it's elites, it's people in control. Um, the, 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 the test for me, for instance, you might have thought that Germany, which was um, the German peoples, plural, in the, uh, in the 17th, 16th, 17th, and 18th centuries, were the richest, most successful, um, really in, in every way, the group of people in Europe most likely to do well and they were wiped out in, 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 the, in the Thirty Years' War um, because it didn't matter how good their economy was, their economy was ruined by um, your own Empire uh, laying them waste. Uh, so I'm unrepentant about this. I think unless you start with politics and you know the structure of dates and events through, um, through the history of Europe, you're not going to understand anything else. I believe that about British history and European history and world history. Good. Now, so... Uh one might talk about, the, my next question isn't going to make me any friends in the London School of Economics, uh, in fact may just embarrass myself, but uh, what you're talking about there is the dynamics of what one would call empirical history, the, the, the facts of the development of, these, uh, of this uh, European space. <clears throat> and you gave an account there as to why you would privilege that over, for example, an economic history. Now, amongst the kinds of history that there are, there is one rather odd one, which isn't just cultural history, which is called philosophical history. And as a philosopher, I've got a kind of uh, sign-up for that one. And, and philosophical history uh, takes its point of departure uh, not from events in the world, but from events of a rather different kind, events which open up a world with, uh, uh, within which empirical history takes unfolds and this this kind of world that i'm thinking of here is as it were what belongs to a space of an understanding of who we are of what it is to be a human being a sort of self-understanding and an understanding of the world itself and that as it were unless we look at what first opens up this space for an empirical history uh, again we're threatened by a certain kind of meaninglessness of this, then that, then this, then that, then this, and that. 
And for Europe, you seem to me to touch on this sort of what opens up this space as a world within which a certain history unfolds. When very near the beginning of the book, on page four, you talk about something that you say seems to run through Europe's history, and yet you don't, as it were, have any space for making sense of it, which is what you call a dualism of Greek and Roman culture on the one hand and Christian ethics and belief on the other. And the the tension between, roughly speaking, this Greco-Roman side and this Christian side is, as it were, originary for a European, for being European. And so we won't understand any of the significance of the events unless we attend to the way in which uh, a philosophical history would look at the way in which the world is opened up in which European history takes place. So that looks like another way of talking about a privilege over the political. Well, yeah, I, I can see why you say it, because you're a philosopher. Mm. <laughs> um, uh, I mean, I don't agree altogether. I mean, I, it, it is a fascinating feature of European history, uh, and I do frequently discuss this dualism. Um, that, that, that there is no doubt that the most significant single event in European history was Christianity. Uh, and it was, it, was, it was the rise of faith in this particular version of God um, that dominated Europe's history right into the, into the 18th century. Um, and and uh, depending on your point of view, caused millions of deaths. Mm. Um, uh, but um, uh, but I, mean, I think at the same time, the, the, the relationship between Greek and Roman culture and Christianity produced this, um, produced this passionate belief in the individual, the importance of the individual, and the individual's relationship with God and with the state, yeah. these two different sort of entities. Um, and when people believed passionately in the, in the, in the Christian God and Christi- the Christian tradition, um, it gave the Pope this immense power over them. Um, I mean, the, the, the extraordinary way the Holy Roman Emperors would, would end up sort of cringing, uh, Henry IV crawling to Canossa to beg forgiveness from the Pope for, for, for appointing the wrong person as a bishop. Um, he, he, the, 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 the power of the Roman Catholic Church was just immense. But it was always vulnerable to power. And, uh, and I just don't think that, that the history of philosophy is anything other than... Philosophical history, not the history of philosophy. I'm not, not, not so interested in that. But, yeah. Philosophical history. Um, we, I'm not totally sure I know what you mean, but I, I think I've got the point. Uh, I, I just simply, I simply think, I mean, I, I, I gave myself 85,000 words. It's a very short book. Yeah. Uh, and I said, I'm not going to have a word longer. And I know everyone's going to say, why didn't you do this? Well, you missed this out. You yes. didn't discuss Finland. You didn't discuss Sardinia. Um, uh, no, I didn't, um, because it wasn't that important. And I honestly think philosophical history was not that important. Right. Important, but not that important. Well, you almost gave the game away, saying that how much of it depended on a certain conception of the individual that yes. was formed in that space, and I'll take that away. So, uh, the, uh, Actually, very interesting that you t- talk about the, uh, the lake, the Mediterranean basin. Um, Paul Valery, who I mentioned earlier, when he was writing about Europe and the emergence of this European subjectivity, for example, in particular that sense of individuality and a general sense of human equality. Uh, He talked about the Mediterranean as the site of the emergence of that. And uh, he he called it a machine, the trading that was going on with the ships that you were talking about, all these boats going across the Mediterranean between what he said, you know, unbelievably different parts of the world. Uh, was a machine for making civilization, a kind of factory. And the f- factory wasn't peopled by Europeans. 
Europeans were the output. You had these people from all races, all religions, all cultures, and he said they were trading in goods and ideas, gods and ideologies, uh, propaganda and values, all the same in this space, and its output were these Europeans. So that, anyway, that's, that's my point of departure. I, I, it, 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 one thing I, I noticed about Europe is if you, if you go back to the earliest days of Europe, it was essentially an, an immigrant creation. Um, uh, I mean, every single person in Europe came from somewhere else. Um, most of them African Anatolian, African Anatolian, Mesopotamia. Um, so, so it started by being immigrant. And a lot of the problems of European history have been caused by immigrants, i.e. themselves, not getting on with each other. I mean, you go back to the Indo-European roots of some of these languages and then the non-Indo-European roots of some of the languages um, in conflict with them. Um, I mean, language is very important in Europe, because I say many of them. But they are reflections of these immigrant groups. And, and I was w w watching this documentary about, about um, the immigration crisis in 2015, seeing the Syrians desperately trying to get into Europe. Thinking to myself, this goes back 2,000 years. It's not new. And Europe constantly refreshed itself by these waves of immigrants coming in. But, of course, they then clashed because there wasn't much space. And then they spilled out. And just as I think a lot of the early European culture comes from the, the people of the Sea of the Mediterranean... Later European culture, I mean the 17th, 18th, century, 19th century culture, comes from the people of the Sea of the Atlantic. And, and it, it's, it's the discovery, I mean, Daniel Bolston's great book, The Discoverers, in, in which he says um, everything depends upon the Latin sail, um, the, the, the invention of, of technology whereby you can sail against the wind, meant sailors were prepared to sail across the Atlantic and there they could get back. Um, these, the, all these things are terribly important. Um, and, and you could do a scientific history of Europe as well as a philosophical one. <laughs> and uh, and uh, I, someone's going to do it. I'm sure right. thousands of people have done it. It just wasn't my book, I'm sorry. Yeah, I, really, I really liked your distinction between uh, Europe as people of the sea and a Europe as uh, people of the land. And you later talked also about like a core Europe, which is this sort of middle of the land Europe. And uh, I think you're right to think that the people of the sea historically has been a, a sort of west-south distinction, that's a, a Europe of the Atlantic and a Europe of the Mediterranean. And then this inside space, the, the people of the middle, as uh, Nietzsche talks about it, who is, which is predominantly German, but a little bit like Franco-German in the way you describe it. Well, talking about the Germans, I'm going to just do one last question for you, uh, and again embarrass myself with my own interests, which uh, is your single reference to Kant. You've actually got uh, quite a few references to other philosophers, but Kant, who I think is probably the most significant uh, thinker of the European Enlightenment, he gets one, but it's a very important one, and it's also, in a way, very telling, because it brings us to uh, Brexit, because it's in your epilogue, you say this, the reality is that since the fall of Rome, no power has come near to ruling this continent. Charlemagne did not do so, nor did the Habsburg Holy Roman Emperors, nor France's Napoleon, nor Germany's Hitler, nor yet the commissioners of the European Union. If history teaches anything, it is that all attempts to straighten Kant's crooked timber of humanity will fail. And this is a massive and interesting challenge to the European Union, that if we are crooked timber, then the idea of some ideal state-like formation at the heart of Europe which will organize us politically in a pacific, peaceful way, is bound to fail. And what, what's so striking, I did warn Simon that I was going to tell him this, that 
That quote from Kant is in an essay by Kant in which he's talking about the idea of European Union in the 1780s and says, if it has a state-like form, it will fail. And he projects an alternative vision of a European Union, which he said would take about 200 years to come about, which was pretty much to the day. And uh, that European Union, as he saw it, would not be a federal state, but a federation of free states. And he thought that alone would be stabilizable for a people, so, peoples so diverse as the Europeans. And of course, one of the great fears, and perhaps also uh, one of the things that may, they want, people wanted people to fear about the European Union was some kind of dynamic towards something state-like, towards some kind of uh, European supranational state from Brussels which would rule us and another thing of this sort of British desire for non-domination to get out of it um, it may be that there are people in Brussels who would love to see a federal state in Europe but at the moment it is a federation of states and they, they have their sovereignty in their own domain and they pool their sovereignty in other places and I don't really yet see why you representing yourself as a skeptic aren't perhaps taken by at least some model of European Union as a form of our sort of integrated development because it won't work none of them well they haven't yeah. I mean I hate the screens eternal <laughs> but I mean, uh, I mean the, 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 it is quite interesting that they uh, the, 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 the ever closer union model yeah. of, 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 of Schumann and Monet and uh, it was always French, and uh, and Giscard d'Estaing produces the the, 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 the the Lisbon Treaty and, and the the final push towards ever closer union, um, and it, it, it just it, that that snapped. It just didn't work, um, and it didn't work because too many people didn't want it. Simple as that. Um, European Union has always depended upon a, a degree of obedience uh, among the populations of Europe, um, with the desire of their elites to join this great club. Uh, I'm talking about Eurosceptic here, I know, but, um, but it, 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 the echoes back through European, European history are so strong that you just know if you take it too far, you, 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 you ride roughshod over the old tribal identities of Europe, and people who ride roughshod over those end in tears. I agree, but I would agree with that, Simon, but the, I mean, first of all, if we look at the ever closer union thing, it's ever closer union of the peoples, plural, of Europe. There is not an idea of European people who will be politically integrated under a single uh, central European state. And the, what, you're, what, what you're right about is that say, any attempt to take that sort of telos, that goal of European integration as full political integration is bound to fail and Britain will be only the first to leave. But, but, but it seems to me that that doesn't strike the end of a European project of political cooperation. Um, right. oh, I, I, I obviously I agree with you, but, but I mean, I, 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 some of the people in Brussels I used to talk to, I mean, they just wanted one European state. Yeah. And I mean, Pascal Lamy said, you, you can't believe in European individual parliaments, can you? You don't, you don't still believe in the British Parliament. I said, I do. <laughs> and I think you should. You know, it's, 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 they were as stupid as that. I mean, when Thatcher said, no, 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 she was speaking for, you know, not just half of Europe, for most of Europe. Um, and, and, uh, but, but, I mean, but, uh, the other side of it is, if you go too far down that route, 
the elastic band drags you back to, to, to nationalisms, populisms, and so on, and then we throw out the baby with the bathwater. Um, Peter Wilson, at the end of his great history of the Holy Roman Empire, has, has a final mischievous chapter in which he says, he said, actually, this empire is the most successful in Europe's entire history. It lasted a thousand years. Uh, it produced Bach and Beethoven and Goethe and everybody, you know, great German culture, all flourished under the, the Holy Roman Empire. And the point of the Holy Roman, Holy Roman Empire was it wasn't an empire. Mm. It was a confederation. Yeah. And, and, the, and, and the, the Thirty Years' War broke out because, um, because the, 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 um, the, the emperors transgressed the central principle of the empire, which was the right of every state um, to have its own faith and its own government. And that was the cause of this, this hell. That's a lovely image to remember this with. So one end, what one wants to avoid is one end of the elastic band, as it were, is of nationalism outbreak breaking out, and on the other, an over-centralized bureaucracy. And that, just as a matter of fact, really is where Kant says the crooked timber of humanity. That's how crooked we are. And he's trying to think, in, in his own way, how to achieve that balance between these two extremes. And his idea is, is a, a confederal one, a, a federation of what he called a federation of free states. I still think it's possible anyway. It will be. I mean, we'll, and we'll rejoin it. Yeah. We'll rejoin it. <laughs> will it be long? <laughs> <laughs> anyway, okay. uh, let's, let's allow people. Now, you had your hand up even before we I had any hands to offer. Um, I'll... Okay, wait, for the, wait for the mic, though. Um, thank you. I'll, I'll make it very quick because you've actually raised uh, most of the points I was uh, going to suggest. I've, I've worked for but not in the European Commission. And so um, the point about the difference between the peoples of the seas and the middle, very much noticeable. And I, I really never heard a better phrase for Brussels than the remorseless sense of bureaucratic centralism. That's it to a T, and some of it is very disturbing. My question is really how long to go back or come to a new relationship. Can the European central institutions and indeed the nation states, including Britain, in or out, cope with the retreat of America, the resentment of Russia, which you highlighted so brilliantly, and more importantly, of course, you know what's coming next, the rise of China. Okay, thank you. Good question. Um, uh, <laughs> there are only two answers, yes or no. <laughs> um, and uh, I, I really don't know the answer. I'm not, I'm not, I'm not a visionary. Um, I can just see that these things have happened so many times before. Um, we've been down this route. Um, we know that if you over-centralize power, as Napoleon did, as Hitler did, um, and as some people in the EU wanted to do, um, the thing, the thing won't, won't tolerate it. Um, anti antibodies build up. Um, uh, with Napoleon, the antibody was Britain and Russia, interestingly. Um, and, and now you've got Britain and Russia, in a sense, on the outside of, of a, a, a slightly sort of desiccated EU, which is in deep trouble, in my view. But where it's going to lead, I don't know. I just don't know. I mean, it's not even asking me. <laughs> I assume that, that it, it will disintegrate to a certain extent, that there will be two or three tiers of Europe, um, that, that EFTA will sort of revive in some sense with us as a member of it. Um, that we'll, we, 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 I, I just I hope we do not leave the customs union. That to me is madness. 
Let's leave that to one side. I mean, we can leave the EU, but leaving the customs union, for, for an offshore island to leave a, a, a customs union with its adjacent mainland is crazy. Um, but, um, but leave that to one side. Somehow or other, um, we always come back towards Europe. And it wasn't, wasn't by very much that we left. Um, so I'm sure that will happen. But the rest of your question is for the future. I don't okay. Uh, yes, one here. You just, if you don't mind waiting, it will come, it'll come to you. Hi, thank you so much for your talk. I'm only sorry that we didn't get the hour version and we only got the 20-minute version. But um, can I ask you, why do you think we so singularly fail to learn any of the lessons of history? <laughs> I, th I think the lessons of history are difficult. That's, that's the, the answer, probably. Um, <clears throat> it's in the nature of governments... And we've got this intriguing new development of, of a democratic government and a populist government supposedly over against each other. But both of them are, in some sense, reflections of the popular will. And the popular will um, tends to like lines of least resistance and the shortcuts and all these things. And, um, and uh, learning from history is not a shortcut. Um, I, have to say, I have to say, I just I, I so passionately believe in history and the teaching of history. Ah, get me going. But teaching of history as a series of episodes is ludicrous. My, my, my dear beloved son asked me a question, having done A-level history, and he was doing a university degree in art history, and he had to do an essay, and he was having us trouble with his essay. He said, Dad, can you help me? I'm doing this essay on interwar German art. I know about the Second World War and Hitler and all that. What was the first? I mean, this, this kid's done, done A-level history. He had no idea of, of, of the sequence. He, he didn't know what came between Henry VIII and, and Queen Victoria. Um, uh, I just find it absolutely incredible. If I can put history into an hour, and I do English history in an hour and European history, if I can put it in one hour, for God's sake, the kids could do it in one term. Um, as it is, they're taught these, 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 these blocks of specialisms, which I think are, are, are pernicious, I really do. And that's my view of history. I had a, a rather similar experience, though, with a, a colleague. <laughs> I, I, I was new here, and, and I met somebody who, who was, is, he's retired now, so it's okay, um, um, an, uh, in, the, in the history group here. And um, I said, what do you work on? He said, oh, European history. I said, oh, that's amazing. You know, I work on Europe, too. And, and what, what, do you, what do you look at? And he said... Um, European Union, 1956 to 58. <laughs> yep. Hello. Um, you obviously talked about immigration, which I think we know is uh, fairly fundamental to the Brexit debate. Um, uh, one thing that's always struck me is that actually the areas that voted consistently to remain were generally areas of high immigration, like London, Scotland... Um, particularly, and yet those areas which are white and Anglo-Saxon, you know, the northeast particularly, for example, were actually most likely to vote leave. Was it more of the fear of immigration and not being like them down in London that drove the Brexit vote, or was it immigration itself? I don't know. Um, I, 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 people have said both. Um, uh, I mean, I, I, it, 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 the, the, that vote was so complex. It's like the Trump vote. Uh, all I know about the Trump vote and the Leave vote is they are almost democratically identical. It was very interesting. Um, but um, but uh, when, when you had all these polls after the, after the result of the election, of, of the referendum, 
trying to find out what Leave voters really worried about immigration for. Immigration was the dominant thing, but when you ask them what, what's wrong with immigration, they always said something about uh, benefits or, or housing. Um, they didn't mind about immigrants. They were very careful to say that, some of them. Um, but they did, they did worry about the effect on the welfare state and, and, and their lives to, that, lives to that extent. Um, but as you know, voters aren't really rational. Um, I mean, I just do think it was a huge vote against London. I really do. It was, it was, it was, you go to the provinces, you find people, all walks of life, just, I voted leave to get those bastards in London and smack in the face. And, uh, and that, that, I think, is, a, is, a, is, a, is, a, is a, it's the populist vote. Um, but I think populism is the wrong word for it because it, it, it suggests popular. Anyway. Mm. Uh, one there and then one here. Um, I know you said you talked about America um, always going to come in and save Europe and Europeans want America to come in. Do you think that Britain had that same mentality, uh, Napoleonic Wars, the First World War, that it had to come in and save the European mess that's been created and uh, restore the balance in Europe? Sorry, what, what, what's the subject of the what, What's the question again? Oh, so, so do you think Britain had the same mentality of America in having to swoop in and save Europe? Uh, in the First World War, in the Napoleonic Wars, um, and that's kind of still stayed with us. We, we are part of Europe, but we're the ones who have to come in and clean the mess. Well, I mean, uh, the, 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 that is the arrogant British view <laughs> of, of, of why we re-entered Europe having left it. Um, uh, I had to say there's something in it. I mean, there's no doubt that, 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 that Marlborough's intervention, um, Wellington's intervention, so to speak, uh, and the two world wars were not our fault. I mean, we were coming in to help um, the goodies against the baddies in Europe. Um, uh, in, in the case of Napoleon, it was quite interesting. We, our intervention in, 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 in um, the, the, the French wars at the beginning of the 19th century was almost entirely because Napoleon attacked us or was going to attack us. So we weren't really engaged with Napoleon at all or with, with, with France at all. We were happy to stay out of that. Um, but, but all the Brexits, which, I, which I've charted, all the Brexits were effectively the British people really saying we are not Europeans. I mean, Disraeli's great statement to Bismarck, um, in, early in Bismarck's life, he, he, um, he, you know, he, said, he said, please understand, the British people are not mere Europeans. We're a sort of Asian power. Very interesting phrase. We're a sort of Asian power. He said at the Congress of Berlin. And, and, um, and it, 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 it was, I mean, even today, you talk to a, a, a lever today, and, they, and I, I say, what do you mean? What's going to happen? March 29th. They said, well, you know, we've always got on with the rest of the world and it's going to be fine and it'll be a bit of a mess initially, but, but you, mean, you know, we, we're an international country. We had a great empire. I mean, all these phraseology comes out. Um, and, and it is deep in our, in our psychology, I think. So, on the whole, when we've gone to war in Europe, it has been with reasonably sort of philanthropic purposes, yes. Thank you. Yes, it was down here and then there and then we'll go up there. Wonderful talk. Thank you. Do you know, you may know something uh, of the great Kuden of Kalergi, a 20th century figure, and his Pan-Europa movement, and um, I think he developed his ideas at the time of patriotism, but do you know some of his ideas, Count Kuden of Kalergi and his Pan-Europa movement, and its possible relevance to today and the future of Europe? Kuden of Kalergi. I'm afraid it's completely new to me. I'm, 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 uh, I'm, I look forward to being informed better. Oh, Kudin of Kalergi was Hungarian who, in the 20s, promoted the idea of a united pan-European movement, promoting Europe in civilization throughout the world. Um, 
And I, 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 okay, well, maybe... I, I, I will, I will, I'll pursue it. I'll Google it. Okay, okay. right, okay. Yes. Well, the one you probably do know more about, would be, given the, what you've just said, is um, Churchill calling mm. for a kind of United States of Europe in the Zurich speech. No, no one analysing the Zurich speech of Churchill has ever discovered whether when he said there should be a United States of Europe, thought he included England. That's right. <laughs> But, I mean, he could have, he could not. I mean, no one knows. Well, very soon afterwards, mm. he sort of thought that we would. Mm. Uh, but that was more or less at the end of empire rather than in, in the midst of it, which was still in, so in 46. I have to say, the fact that Churchill said it doesn't make it true. No, no. <laughs> yes. Yeah, no, where were we? Yeah, it's back uh, behind there and then up here. Uh, thank you, sir. Thank you for your lecture. Uh, you mentioned Yugoslavia at the end of the speech, and just two months ago I visited all of them, and they have uh, they have really similar languages and cultures. Um, under the rule of Tito and with the help of the communist ideology, uh, they had found a way to unify the whole nation, the whole South Slavic nation. <clears throat> uh, however, at the beginning of 1990s. Uh, the whole country get into the vortex of the war. And my question, my question is quite simple. So uh, even a relatively small European country like Yugoslavia uh, cannot remain united. And how can EU possibly unify a continent with so many different languages and cultures since the circumstances become more and more pessimistic? Thank you. Well, it, 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 it's like, how do you make love to a porcupine? You do it with very great care. I mean, you, 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 you know, I mean, Yugoslavia is a good test case. I mean, Bismarck understood his Balkans. Um, uh, if, if Yugoslavia can't hold together, how can Europe? So I totally take the point. Now, it was held together by Tito's um, communist regime, um, and, um, and you can hold countries together for a certain amount of time through a form of dictatorship. We know that. Uh, it just doesn't last very long. Um, uh, the, the, the falling apart of Yugoslavia, in which we, I may say, played a major part, um, like we went to war with Serbia when Serbia tried to keep Bosnia and, and Kosovo ashore. I mean, not that they deserved any sympathy, but I'm simply saying, um, on the whole, Western intervention in most of these countries has been in, 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 on the side of fissiparism and partition and breaking them up. Um, Iraq, all these places. Anyway, um, uh, but, but no, I mean, the, the, the message is always... Um, you can bind together a little, but not too much. And who are we to talk? I mean, we, we, we cannot, we still cannot, God knows, since hundreds of years, keep the, the Welsh, the Scots, and the Northern Irish happy. Um, um, we have no right to tell anyone else how to look after their, their confederation, wherever it is, because we can't even do it ourselves. We're a pretty sophisticated country. So I just think the message I draw from this is that peoples of a different language, ethnicity, history, are very unlikely to live together with other people unless you're very, very careful about the subsidiarity of your regime. And that's why, that's why I'm a passionate localist. Um, the, the way you protect uh, union is through disunion. Uh, you organize your constitution so that pe subordinate people, subordinate cities, towns, villages feel that they're sufficiently in control of their affairs um, not to resent the union. And, and it's, it's, it's a trick that Europe has failed to achieve. I mean, you know, Virgil was right about the Greeks. You know, they couldn't do politics. Up here, he's been very patient. 
Thank you very much. Thank you for thank you everybody. An excellent uh, evening. May I just come back on what you said about the fall of the Berlin Wall that you talked about, the West gloating. I certainly wouldn't defend Mrs. Thatcher having a big dinner with the President. I find that's totally unacceptable. But if we take those states that were under the communist regime for so long, and you said it was a disaster that the NATO limits were extended, I'm just wondering where, I can't follow you that, I'm just wondering where is the middle ground? Because surely we had some moral responsibility to protect these countries. If you're in the, take something like the Baltic states now, they still tremble for what may or may not happen with potential Russian expansion. I'm, I'm not sure where, what, what, could you just sort of elaborate when you said you thought that was a disaster and we were, in your words, gloating. I, I'm not sure what, uh, what the alternative is, for example. Well, there's a proposal now being mooted about Finland and um, some of the Baltic states um, that they should, uh, they, should, they should become neutral, um, that, that, that NATO, NATO shouldn't guarantee their security. They should be neutral. They should, be, they should, be, they should remain within. As, as the Visegrad fall, um, Orban and Co., they're all very pally with Putin now. Um, but, but, but that has always been Russia's sphere of influence, just as America describes Central America as its sphere of influence. They were always Russia's sphere of influence, um, Ukraine is the same, um, and to 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 to, um, to 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 push the border of 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 the enemy forces right up to the Russian border just was a reckless thing to do. Um, I'm afraid I, I just would have said no. You can't join. You you you, you can remain neutral. Um, you must make your peace with Russia, um, and uh, and uh, and uh, Europe will go about its business. We can have all kinds of relationships. But, 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 to, but to move your military guarantee that far forward at that particular juncture was reckless. And, and Yeltsin said so in no uncertain terms, and he was right. But what, what about the other border that moved uh, with the enlargement of the EU as well? It also moved its uh, eastern border east. Was that e the same, same problem? Well, it, it, it split Ukraine. Um, I mean, Ukraine wanted to join, and yeah. half it didn't, half it didn't. Yeah. Um, but what do we do? I mean, we, we, we've effectively said to Putin to do what he's exactly doing, which is, in effect, colonize the Russian-speaking bits of the Baltics uh, and Ukraine um, and Crimea, obviously, and just simply say, you know, right, you're, you're on our side now. Um, it, 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 all, I've done, all we've done is we've increased tension, what I'm really saying. And everything should have been aimed at decreasing rather than increasing tension, particularly at that particular moment in the, in the 1990s. And, and so you would have said the same about enlargement, that that should have been he at least held off. Mm. Right. Where are we? Uh, back, is it, okay. okay, yeah, right at the back. There's two people, there's two people upstairs. Um, is there one there? Yeah, two. Uh, I was very struck by your optimism, and I hope to goodness you're right, that there would be... Uh, there will be no further conflict in Europe. But I spent Remembrance Weekend in a very small French town that had a parade around its war monuments. And the first war mo monument that they went to, this was the entire town with a huge parade, consider it as a town of 6,000 people. They went to the Prussian-Franco War Memorial. They then went on to the First World War and the Second World War. But the first of all that they played the Marseillaise at was the Franco-Prussian War Memorial. And it was very plain, it's very active 
in their mind. And there was uh, some German dignitaries from a paired town there. And uh, in fact, the German mayor gave an excellent speech about reconciliation and facing up to past histories that was applauded but was not particularly um, uh, involved with by the largely French um, population. And I look at um, what's happening on the Slavic borders, if you like, of Europe. And I hope your optimism is right. I just wonder when you think about those continuing antipathies, how optimistic you can be. Well, I'm, <laughs> I'm an optimist by nature. Uh, optimism and pessimism are not about um, analysis, it's about your psychology, I think. I mean, I'm, I'm an optimist. Um, no, I, I, I mean, you can, you, 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 I mean, the burning grievance, I, I, I'm, I'm, I'm here a radical, I'm, I'm against Remembrance Days. I'm against Remembrance Days, period. Um, the remembering of grievances is the chief cause of war. Uh, because you remember a grievance through distorted lenses. Uh, and I mean, l l this is what Yugoslavia was about. Um, uh, there's a very good book called The Importance of Forgetting. And it's, it's, a, it's, a, it's, a, it's, a, it's a, quite a short essay. I actually forget the name of the David, um, anyway, never mind. Um, uh, but but it, it, it's, about, it's about why it's very, very important um, for, for, for people to know what to remember and what to forget. Because if you remember everything, um, you, you remember the bad things rather than the good things. So I'm, I'm just against the, the, I'm taking your point absolutely. And, and this annual gathering, uh, which we, we sort of queue up like Dad's army um, to, to, to remember the First World War and the Second World War, and, I mean, the BBC, I mean, every night there's a war film on. Uh, we're obsessed with war. I mean, is it 90% of books about Hitler are written in, in, published in Britain still? Um, I mean, the Germans find us bizarre. I mean, not, not, not sick, but bizarre. Um, there, there's a, a channel uh, on Freeview Channel called the History Channel, which I always just call the Hitler Channel. Hitler Channel, you're quite right, yes. <laughs> there's nothing else on it. Absolutely right. yes. I think a, a friend of mine who was actually in the audience said mm. that uh, he thought that the reason why we have a Hitler channel is because it's the last and perhaps only war where we seem to be unambiguously on the right side. <laughs> a bit unfair, but I... <laughs> but you know, you, 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 what you've just said is actually almost quoting yourself. Uh, that is why the art of history is not just of remembering, but also of knowing what to forget, mm. which is an important point. But I wondered in a short history what you didn't want to forget, but you left out. What did I leave out? Well, you, the, 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 no, but that you didn't really want to forget, or that you would have liked to have kept in. I, I really don't. I can't answer that question. I mean, it's too much. <laughs> uh, one here. Yeah. Chap in the front. The chap up there. Is yeah, yeah. Next. First of all, thank you for the talk. Um, so my perspective, being a dual national, American and British as well, um, I find it kind of baffling in a few different ways, also being a, I like to think of myself anyway, as a student of world history. Um, the sheer kind of mass, as you put it, the gravity, like in a physics sense, of Europe in the kind of global geopolitical space-time is undeniable. Why do you think it's acceptable that Britain seems to have this kind of cognitive dissonance where it wants to, on the one hand, uh, be part of this great kind of project, 
and on the other hand, um, bury its head in the sand. Thank you. Uh, which project are you talking to about? about sorry. You ask you ask a question about something called Britain. <laughs> I mean, that, 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 what's so fascinating is that there, there are two Britons. I mean, we saw. I mean, every now and then, one is fifty-two percent, one's forty-eight percent. Um, Britain has always been ambivalent. It's, it's, been a, it's been a country of the rest of the world. Huge important, I have to say, huge important factor here, I'm not even sure I discussed it in the book, is the English language. I mean, if your language is the language that's spoken around the world, you sort of feel an affinity with the world. Um, if you're a German, you just don't feel that sort of affinity, um, uh, and, 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 or French or Dutch or whatever it might be. So I actually do think that the, the reason why people aren't afraid of going, going offshore from Europe is the Americans speak English, um, the Australians speak English, the world speaks English. Um, and I was fascinated watching this program on Monday, Norman Pierce's program about Europe. Um, all the people she interviewed, all the leaders of Europe, all spoke English. They're speaking English to each other. You know, it's now the language of, of universities, the language of medicine and so on. It's, it's, it's an international language. And I do think that has something to do with Britain's attitude to the rest of the world versus Europe. The Europeans don't yet speak English. And a friend of mine said, 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 you're stupid to leave Europe just at the very moment when Europe is about to speak English. Um, but he said, but bad English. You must learn to speak bad English. Mm. There's, uh, I mean, I think it also would be, although we don't know what's going to happen in the next few weeks, and it could go really terrible, um, Brit Britain's links to mainland Europe uh, will remain profoundly massive for everything in our lives, whether in universities where, where you get connections, uh, through hospitals where you get connections, through police forces where you get connections, and obviously through trade, which is uh, still for both the European mainland and for us, and perhaps especially Ireland, hugely significant parts of our life. So, I mean, I, I, there is often said, you know, you can, leaving the EU doesn't mean leaving Europe. Uh, um, the trouble is that at the moment we could manage both. Uh, uh, thank you very much for your talk. Um, the United States are the only European colony you mentioned that got independent. And I just wanted to know why you chose to omit all the other countries and all the other things that happened out of Europe. Well, because I was talking about Europe. Oh, but it's Well, point taken, all right. Um, I could have mentioned lots more. Um, the, 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 the biggest European colony, in a sense, the biggest sense in which there's a, 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 a European culture, a European um, language, a European um, sort of existence transported out of Europe is to America. And America was the, 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 the big example of Europe um, offshore. Uh, uh, represented by America coming back to help in the two world wars. So I, I just do think there's a, a peculiar bond between Britain and America, which is unlike the bonds of the other um, imperial parts of the world or whatever, if that's what you're referring to. Um, uh, th th they have um, taken their independence more in their stride, if I can put it that way. Um, than Amer America and Britain have this special relationship, which of course, as someone said, it's a special relationship which means absolutely nothing. But it does sort of mean something. Like, if you turn on the radio now, Radio 4, I should think about a quarter of the people on Radio 4 have got American accents. I noticed this. Very few have got European accents or whatever. 
There is a very strong bond, cultural as much as anything else, between Britain and America. It just can't be denied. Uh, presumably there's also a distinction between a settler colony and That's a colonizing point, yeah. movement into somebody else's country. I mean, obviously there were indigenous Americans, but uh, smaller, maybe it's exactly the same, I don't know, but there were huge numbers of Europeans going there as well, rather than well, smaller numbers. Australia of, and New Zealand, I suppose, but I mean, yeah. yeah. Right. Uh, where were we? Yeah, stay up, stay up the top, up the back. Hello, thank you very much for the talk. Uh, I just cannot resist to comment and ask about, uh, I'm from Ukraine, so you made the point that for the peace to remain, the countries next to Russia should remain neutral, like they should not go into NATO. But the problem is, even if those countries want to be uh, independent and want, like, don't want to go into NATO or be with Russia, the problem begins when one of those two neighbors wants to influence them. So if Russia, for example, <coughs> wants to influence Ukraine, what it wants, and Ukraine does not want to, it, has just, it just has to, 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 to go of one of those two powers if one of those two powers on the left side and on the right side want to influence them and they don't want to be influenced. So I don't think that is a key for, for, for peace. Well, I mean, I, 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 I have a harsh reply. Uh, Ukraine is very close to Russia. It is not close to Britain. And I do think extending a nuclear guarantee to countries along the Russian border is a reckless thing to do. Uh, it doesn't carry plausibility. I mean, you know what Powell once saying, would I really sacrifice Birmingham for Warsaw? Um, <laughs> and you have to ask yourself that question if you're going to give them a nuclear guarantee. I mean, I get rid of nuclear weapons. But as long as you're in this predicament of, um, of uh, pre-First World War guarantees to other countries, you have to be realistic about what you're likely to do. Um, and I, I'm afraid, with great respect to your country, I'm not prepared to go to war with Russia because Russia wants to take a chunk of Ukraine. And at the moment, Russia does. It's got a chunk of Ukraine. But what do you think that will open a new door if, if the Europe led to do it? I, I just don't know. I don't know. I, I, I mean, if, 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 if Britain had a dispute with America, I wouldn't want Ukraine to come to Britain's aid. I mean, we, 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 the reality of geography does condition politics, is what I'm really saying. And, and, one, and one, of the, one of the failings of NATO, it's been around too long. I totally agree with Trump about NATO. Not much else, but about NATO. One of the failings of NATO, it's been around too long, we've slid into an easy assumption that these, these, these gargantuan guarantees being given to more and more countries um, of, of, of absolute security against Russia uh, is a sensible thing to do. I just don't think it is sensible. It's exactly the sort of mistake you made in the 1890s and 1900s um, uh, about how to resist German revanchism. Um, and it was a catastrophe. Thank you for that question. Yeah, there's one, one here. So um, we all know this, um, this happened in all Europe, that uh, Europe have a, facing a really low uh, birth rate, and also it's going lower and lower. But um, at the same time, Europeans uh, just keep on accepting immigrants and refugees and with a really high uh, birth rate. So I want to know, what's the future of Europe? I mean, is, is Europe uh, culture still exist in 100 years or something? Because, you know, the population is going to change. 
Well, I, I don't know the answer to that question. All I do know is that Europe's always be benefited by large numbers of immigrants. Um, it just has. And, and, uh, and uh, it needs to go on benefiting from them. Uh, Angela Merkel, um, who's uh, welcome to half a million um, Syrians, uh, was genuinely philanthropic or humanitarian. Uh, but at the back of her mind, it was the knowledge that the German birth rate is going down. Um, and these were middle-class Syrians. Uh, uh, and uh, and I think I think uh, uh, the Italians got so different problems. The Italian immigrants of um, Senegalese and Ethiopians and so on. Um, but but either way, um, the, the Europe, if Europe shuts its door, uh, Europe's got a problem. Yeah, it has problems with assimilation, education, welfare. All these problems are there. But 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 Europe is foolish if it shuts its door. And I don't think it ever will be. Really. It's very difficult to shut a door on a sea-girt continent. Okay, with the future of Europe in that condition, I think we're going to have to stop. Um, don't forget that there is an opportunity for you to have your, a copy of your book signed by Simon. If you get it outside or have already got it, you can come up this side and you, uh, he's happy to sign it. But otherwise, for now, let's uh, thank Simon Jenkins.